for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. It is I, your host, Q, coming to you yet again from my mother's basement, and I'm joined by my co-host extraordinaire, P. How are you doing, sir? As always, doing fantastic. I'm excited to dive in. We are now joined by our special guest today, uh, none other. You have seen him out on the streets of Twitter, punching and kicking at anyone who comes his way. You know him as Corey Klipstein. I know him as Father Savior Corey. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's been a crazy couple of weeks. This all started like two weekends ago. For those who've been living under a rock, can you maybe break down a little bit just on a, a big, big scale image of you're hearing about Luna, but what, what happened in, in your eyes? Yeah, sure. Wait, can we, before we do that, can we give a little bit more context in who Corey is and what he has accomplished? Because I think that um, I first came to hear you speak on Clubhouse. Before that, you created Swan Bitcoin, which is one of the, if not the first Bitcoin only um, company, certainly the, the most, uh, the first that leaned into it as heavily as you have. Oh, you- bro, I got I to kick some love to both... Uh- Bitcoin up in Canada, mm. Francis and the squad. And then also uh, Alex was already rocking and rolling with uh, Amber down in Australia. So, and Unchained, my God, like they sell Bitcoin now. Back then it was just multi-sig. There's a lot of Bitcoin only companies, but yeah, we were kind of the, the first one in the US that was going really hard at like, you know, retail, Bitcoin brokerage, education service, that whole thing. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, Swan Bitcoin's amazing. It's a great way to DCA. You also focus a ton on education, which is something that uh, is fantastic. Okay. With that frame, Q, sorry, please continue. Puppy's laughing at me because that dude like is on space is 24 seven and he knows how this thing works. I just want to uh, quickly remind everyone who is on Twitter spaces, we are not going to be bringing guests up. We are actually live streaming right now. You can see all of our pretty faces. You can see what color P's beard uh, beanie is. You can see Corey and mine's amazing flow over on YouTube with the link above. Uh, And one last little plug about Swan. They actually, if I'm correct if I'm wrong, Corey, but you guys actually came together and really the idea of Swan formed at the Bitcoin conference in 2019, I believe. I was solo dolo, just me by myself. And I presented Give Bitcoin at 2019 and used that to kind of recruit some advisors. So that's where I met. I met Jan, Stefan and Parker within like three minutes of each other. If you want to talk about like overload brain power in a short (laughs) moment of time, that was pretty funny. And then, yeah, it wasn't until I got the product out. I was still the sole co-founder and sole employee through December of 2019. And after we launched in November, you remember with give Bitcoin, you could uh, set up an automatic recurring gift if they're like of the few hundred people that did it back then. Uh, But you could also give it to yourself. And like 90% of the volume right out of the gate was people setting up automatic recurring purchase gifts to themselves. And we were like, evidently that should be the product. And that's when Jan came on and uh, we stripped away the gifting for a little while and focused on Swan and uh, raised some money and brought Jan on as a co-founder, got Brady, got Brandon, Brecky, a lot of the early crew. Uh, and then we launched in March of 2020. That's when uh, when Swan went live. Love, love that. Love a good origin story. Pete, have I, have I finished the uh, 
entry level stuff so that we can dive into the thick of it because I'm kind of ready to just attack dope Quan. Let's fucking go. Awesome. Get it. Thank you. So Corey, um, the craziness that really kicked off a couple of weeks ago, walk us through, I think you were actually calling it from much earlier on. Talk a little bit about like what it was that was sort of sitting not right with you. Yeah. So if you go way back, I still occasionally just check out like what's going on on Delta or Blockfolio or CoinMarketCap or whatever, and just kind of like keep an eye on things so I can be like semi knowledgeable about what's happening. And since November, literally everything was bleeding out. All the cryptos were bleeding out, except for there was one kind of just moving up the charts and it was like Luna. So that just put that in my hip pocket. I was like, I don't know what that is. And then I don't care. Like, I'm not like a shitcoin assassin. Like, I don't really give a shit about your shitcoin. I'm not going to spend any time on it. But if you come close to Bitcoin with it and you try to do the Bitcoin affinity marketing thing and you try to get shine off of Bitcoin undeservedly, uh, you know, that that's going to get my attention. I'm going to see what it is that you're marketing, right? Like, are you marketing, you know, SoFi and crypto.com? That sucks. Fuck you. If you're marketing like, uh, you know, Luna, then double fuck you. So I wanted to see what it was. Um, so that's when I dug in when they said that they were going to uh, buy some Bitcoin and a bunch of Bitcoin influencers like jumped all over that and said, this is good for everyone and stuff like that. And even before digging in, I was like, <laughs> narrator, it was not good for everyone. I think that was late March or something like that. Then I actually dug in uh, like just one weekend. I think it was the end of March or the beginning of April and just checked it out. And first, a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin is impossible. So that's kind of, that was obvious. I knew that from, you know, watching Basis back in 2018 when they tried to get that going and they realized that they, it was impossible to have an algorithmic stablecoin without a team actively conducting open market operations like a central bank or like a mini Fed, right? Because when you're under stress, you have to actually take actions. You have to borrow things, loan things, buy things to keep the peg. You can't just magically keep a peg, right? Um, so it was never going to be decentralized, which meant that it was a security, first of all, um, and that it also you know, was never going to be decentralized. So it was just basically bullshit marketing claims. So that was annoying. Then I dug in a little further and, and what really caught my eye was when I learned about the anchor reserve and the fact that there was somebody topping this thing up every month or so with like another $300 million, then a billion dollars. And so it's like, okay, nobody gives money away for free, right? So who is giving that money away and why, right? And it was, it was some market makers, Jump was posting capital and TFL, uh, Terra, Terraform Labs was posting that capital for the Anchor Reserve. Now, keep in mind, Anchor Reserve, what it is basically is you park your UST there and you get a 20% interest rate. Supposedly, one day, people were going to borrow from that. The borrow volume was like one-sixth of the lend volume on Anchor Protocol. And the interest rate was lower instead of higher. People weren't borrowing at 22%. They were letting them borrow at 12 or 13%. So they're losing money. First of all, their volume is off you know, their books aren't balanced, they're out of balance by 6x. And <laughs> they're subsidizing everybody that's borrowing. So it's like, okay, what are you guys doing? Like, what's the game here? And literally, the only thing that makes any sense whatsoever is they're bribing people to hold UST, because that benefits them in some way. And the only way that they benefit is because they printed 
Luna and over half of it was kept by insiders and TFL got that for free and their VCs got it free or cheap and they gave it at a super discount to the market makers like Three Hours Capital and Jump. And all of those people knew that as the market cap of UST rises, Luna market cap was high beta to that because it seemed to prove the viability of the Terra Luna ecosystem, right? This thing we're doing is successful. There's more TVL in, in UST and Anchor. So the price of Luna was pumping and they were just all selling into the pump, dumping their Luna tokens. And so the calculation is, is it worth it for me, Jump or Terraform Labs to give away another billion dollars because I'm going to sell $2 billion worth of, you know, pretend money, pretend Luna tokens, right? So that's why they were doing it. So when you see tweets from like Novogratz where he's like, hey, you know, actually we made out like bandits and we sold out of this thing before it crashed it's because he was selling into the pump. And so you can't have it both ways. Either you're so unsophisticated that you can't figure out that an algorithmic stable coin is impossible, that nobody's ever solved the Oracle problem and that you need open market operations to do this. And so you're just a bad investor and shouldn't be managing anybody's money because you don't understand that. Or you're in on the Ponzi and you absolutely wrecked a ton of retail and pumped this thing to Bitcoiners willingly loudly tattooing yourself and yeah. got a bunch of them wrecked so are you a fucking idiot, or, fucking idiot or are you a fucking scammer right i don't give a fuck either way classical ethics dictates either way you're fucking out of here right this is de niro with the slots manager in casino right and the guy gets hit for three jackpots in an afternoon and he's like i don't give a fuck he's fucking fired like either he's too dumb to have this job or he's fucking in on it either way he's fucking fired and that's true of all these funds that made tons and tons of money on Luna. Jump made eight to $9 billion last year, not on Luna, but on all their activities. I'm sure Luna was a hefty chunk of that, right? Um, so I'm looking forward to deep investigative journalist activity and really deep regulatory investigation of all of the participants in this obvious Ponzi that has been running for like a year and that came to a head and was easy to forecast that it was gonna blow up. Then you come to Do Kwan. And as you can tell on April 3rd, I found a video of him on a recent podcast and I tweeted that out. And I said, major Elizabeth Holmes vibes from this guy. 99.99% .99 of the time when you hear somebody talking like this, they're a fraud. I left a one in 10,000 chance. I should have done four nines after the decimal point I actually should have been one in a million chance that this maybe one in a hundred billion, I don't know, that this guy wasn't a fucking fraud, but he was obviously a fraud and a scoundrel just by listening to him talk. And, you know, I caught a lot of heat. I got pump coming at me, defending his, his Luna pumping and, you know, doing more softball interviews of shitcoin founders on his show so he can get crypto sponsorships. Like, fuck that fucking scoundrel. All I want to do is boom, boom, boom in a pump and take your money, pump it up, pump it up. Fuck that. Um, so, you know, I just... The whole thing was just fucking disgusting. All the people that made money on it uh, really should be investigated. Talk to us a little bit. Like you, you allude to like some journalists diving into this, some regulators getting involved in this. Like talk to us about those two spaces. You come from a journalistic background. Like what would you like to see journalists or whether it's independent or one of the largest Bitcoin media companies in, in the game, as well as Swan yourselves, like, what is it you're looking for out of the journalistic side? And what are you looking for out of a regulatory side? It's not going to come from crypto media, obviously. 
these types of investigations are going to have to come from financial media. It's going to have to be Wall Street Journal. It's going to have to be FT, you know, barons, stuff like that. Like people that actually have like budgets and aren't sort of so aligned with the industry. Like, do you think Andreessen Horowitz's media arm is going to deeply investigate crypto scams when their entire fucking firm was turned into a crypto scam? I'm going to go with no. Yeah, they're not going to do shit. So, you know, is the block going to investigate it? No. Is Coindesk going to really go hard at this? No. Like these basically, you know, I, I shouldn't throw Coindesk interestingly has some good Bitcoiners and some really good journalists that they've hired over the last couple of years. So it's interesting. I've had some very good conversations there and they've willingly brought me back time and time again to talk about this. So you know, shout out to obviously George Kaloudis over there, who's a, a real Bitcoiner and Christine Lee, who's a real journalist and, and trying to figure out what's going on here and asks good, hard questions of everybody. So it actually, it's interesting that they're building a pretty good org over there. Um, I don't, I don't want to harp on this. It does feed into uh, a topic I want to dive into with you. But when you talk about some of these more traditional financial institutions investigating this, like a Wall Street Journal, is there not a concern that their lack of understanding of just the stark difference between something like Bitcoin and crypto could lead them to make false or incorrect conclusions. They can, but then you can have that conversation. Like these people aren't inaccessible. They'll talk to you. Um, you know, Paul Vigna has been writing about Bitcoin and crypto for five years. He wrote a book about Bitcoin. He understands deeply that Bitcoin is very different from everything else. Like you know, and he's a real journalist with journalistic integrity and, tra and training, right? He knows when a fact is a fact and like when an opinion is an opinion and, and how to tell the difference between the two, which is something we don't get much on Twitter. It's a lot of opinions sort of marketed as fact, right? So yeah, I mean, I, some of these people are just good journalists. Like Tem Stenevac at, uh, at Bloomberg is like a good journalist and asks hard questions when you're on his show and stuff like that. Like, I don't know. I have, I have a little bit of faith that they'll come around. There's a lot of education, but education happens in a bear market. Education comes from digging in here and understanding the difference between Bitcoin and shitcoins. And I think you just got to jump all over these opportunities. We've never had a better opportunity than this one, really, in the history of Bitcoin to shine a light on the difference between centralized VC pump shitcoins and Bitcoin. This is 16 times bigger than any other crypto scam blow up, right? I think one coin plus token both sucked in like, you know, two to 4 billion. BitConnect didn't get that big. This was 60. This is basically the same size as Madoff. That was 65 billion. This is 60 billion. So I think it's a really opportune time for anyone talking about Bitcoin, even though you may hate to learn about shit coins and talk about shit coins. If you want to be useful to journalists, regulators, and legislators in explaining the difference, it actually makes a lot of sense to make this the one thing that you study up on. Because the analogs between Luna and all the other shit coins are very, very strong. The mechanisms are different, but the long con of Ethereum is very similar to what happened with Luna because it's not gonna work in the long run. It's gonna take longer, but in the end, it's not going to work. Luna, it was obvious that it was going to blow up, blow up sooner because they got the Ponzi going like way, way, way too big, too fast. But in the end, these things are not going to work. And each one you can, like we could outsource, we could, we could sort of distribute the work and have like a couple Bitcoiners go deep on Cardano, a couple Bitcoiners go deep on Ethereum, a couple Bitcoiners go deep on Polkadot, a couple, you know, whatever. 
blow up, you know, explain why Axe is fucking stupid, explain why Steppen is going to fail just like BitClout and everything else failed before it. Like, I feel like they keep on saying, like, this one is new, this one is different, this one is innovative, and it never fucking is. It's just a new marketing pump so the insiders can dump their cheap tokens, their free tokens later. I love that. So beautifully said. I mean, we have hundreds of people watching, thousands of people by the end of this week and a watch. If you're watching this, like take it upon yourself. Like let's, I love this idea of like just different groups of Bitcoiners attack all these little shitcoin scams, call them for what they are and like back it up with genuine facts that they won't be able to rebuttal against. Yeah, um, just take, just take the top 30, you know, there's only 20 in there, right? Cause it's a bunch of stable coins that actually are collateralized, you know, whatever. So there's Bitcoin collateralized stable coins, exchange tokens is probably four or five of them, you know, just knock out the top 15 shit coins basically. And that's like, you know, 98% of the non-Bitcoin market cap. Where in your opinion does someone like Satan respawn Brian Armstrong fit into this equation or puzzle of even giving a giving the access to retail some of these like bullshit scams but then also beyond that like the very clear coinbase pump and dump that has very consistently been happening in that space like do they have a responsibility to start further vetting what they're listing off or is it just if people want to buy the garbage let the people buy the garbage well i mean i tweeted out last night or this morning that you can't have it both ways. Either you want to have no regulations for penny stocks and absolute scoundrels like Jordan Belfort, like marketing Ponzi schemes and bucket shop stocks to your grandmother, or you need regulation for shit coins. And I'm totally fine. Like Pierre Richard is like, just abolish the SEC, you know, market solutions will come forward and there will be like, you know, guilds and associations that will rate these things and like the market will will do a better job regulating it than, than the government. And that's a principled, legit stance to take. But Brian Armstrong like hung himself out to dry like six months ago with that long Twitter, Twitter thread, you know, complaining about uh, the SEC blocking them from offering yield products to retail. And, you know, basically saying like, why are we regulated when they're not? And it's like, oh, you really want equality of regulation? Look what traditional finance, look what securities have to deal with. You have a securities exchange. These are all securities with centralized teams. They're not, they're not decentralized in any way, shape or form. I mean, what is the Celsius token? What is the Celsius token? Yeah, like it's company script, right? So on their own AMA, they said that 80 to 90% of Celsius token is held by the company. And yet they're like putting out tweets saying, hey, Celsius went up 2,400% from like, you know, 2018 to 2020 or something. You know, how long do you plan to hodl your cell token, right? And then they like aggressively encourage people to stake this thing for like six months. They try to get people to take out collateralized loans posting cell token as the collateral, which is totally illiquid because the comp it's a closely held stock, right? It's like one of these penny stocks that just pumps on, you know, pink sheets, message boards, because the owner actually has 98% of the float and can like post a little capital whenever the other 2% tries to sell, right? So it's totally manipulated. And, and it's obviously a security, right? Like it's controlled by the company. 
I, I listened to some of that thing on Tuesday and he's like, well, we're leaning toward decentralization. God. Like, what are you talking about? You're leaning, you're I'm leaning towards being sell token tall, is, but that's just you, you're going to like, you're going to own 89% of the token instead of 90% of the token. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Nice business. Um, so I don't know. The, the Celsius one only caught my attention. Again, I don't care about these CFI platforms either unless they are kind of around the Bitcoin space. And he tweeted that, you know, no one had more Bitcoin than Celsius because they had like 140,000 BTC or something. Obviously false, by the way, because Coinbase has way more. And so do so does Nidig and a bunch of other custodians have way, way more than that. Maybe he's gambling more Bitcoin than everybody else. Um, and then what really caught my ire was their bragging tweet that they were smart enough in the you know, the day before the collapse of Anchor to remove $500 million of user funds from the Anchor protocol. That's an own goal, right? You're telling everybody that you're taking customer deposits, which by the way, they market using the word deposit. And then in the fine print, it says, by the way, when we say deposits, that isn't meant to indicate that you're actually depositing anything. You are an unsecured creditor to Celsius. You have lent money to Celsius that we, with our trading operation, our staking operation, our DeFi games operation, uh, will go try to trade and make money and then pay back rewards to you in the currency that you deposited, plus some company script, plus some sell tokens. So when you couple that with, you know, Mashinsky's ridiculously sorted record of misrepresentation, uh, you know, his false claims about you know, being the founder or the inventor of VoIP, which a quick Wikipedia search will prove that's not true. Uh, his claims of having $3 billion of exits, a quick check on Google will prove that's not true. Uh, claiming to have the most successful IPO of 2004 when he wasn't actually involved in the company, he'd been kicked out years before, not true. Claimed to have raised $300 million for Arbonnet, that happened after he was gone, not true. His CFO getting pulled out of the company, uh, arrested in November because of his close association with a criminal over in Israel named Moshe Hagag. I want to see a real journalist dig into Alex's relationship with Moshe Hagag. Why did he not know that his CFO was in like four business ventures with this criminal? And then, you know, I'd like to see somebody go back and look at the ICO plans back in 2018. Was that a security? How did they market it? Like, and again, the only reason I care is because it's on the efficient frontier of potential to have an impact, a negative impact of Bitcoin and shady as hell. That's what got me, that's what got me looking at stock to flow in the first place, right? Which is, the, I've only done two things, gone hard at like two things, maybe three. I went really hard at nakamoto.com because Balaji is a piece of shit. And because that was bullshit trying to say like, hey, let's all be friends. We're going to put this under a Bitcoin flag. And by the way, the moderators are Vitalik and Zuko. Like, fuck off. So I spent 72 hours, I call it Nakamoto weekend, uh, January 3rd, 4th, and 5th, just pulling everybody's fucking card in the background and trying to make sure that couldn't happen. Um, and that worked and it fucking tanked, obviously, and rightfully so, because it was dog shit plan. Uh, and then stock to flow was way too fucking influential for something that was complete bullshit that would never get out of like a stats 101 class, like fucking joke. So yeah, I pulled that card and, you know, was vocal about that. And then there was nothing really that caught my interest that was like, you know, potentially had on, again on that efficient frontier of like 
out on this axis of having like a potential very negative effect for Bitcoin and on this axis, you know, full of shit. And Luna was the next one. And now Celsius seems like uh, the obvious third. And kind of pomp has been like a minor nuisance all along with uh, softball, softball interview infomercials of shitcoin founders. But otherwise he's, you know, he likes Bitcoin. I like that. But the monetization through shitcoins and the, uh, you know, I think just not top of funnel anymore, just keeping people fucking confused, sending them to crypto and giving softball interviews to crypto founders, just giving them infomercials, I think does Bitcoin a disservice. I want to quickly remind everyone who's uh, tuning in on Twitter spaces that we are not going to be having any guests up. We are streaming this live on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to join the conversation over there. We're going to take questions from the YouTube chat, uh, as well as give away some free sats. Corey, I kind of want to Maybe maybe we could start on the pomp of it all. Maybe maybe it's better if we go through through the lens of education with this. But I'm curious about what events like this Luna debacle have on those who are maybe not yet in Bitcoin but are curious about it. And what kind of what do we in the community need to do to help them really understand and emphasize the point that Bitcoin is not crypto? They are not the same. Yeah. I think you just have to post all of branches all the time. You know, I'm reaching out through my network and offering to explain this to people and posting helpful like explanations. Like I'm, I'm way more fiery on Bitcoin Twitter and like on a Bitcoin show than I am with normies. Like I, I'm just much more matter of fact and stick to the facts, ma'am. And like, you know, I've got, I've gotten DMs from over 200 Celsius members that have proven to me that they've withdrawn their Bitcoin from Celsius. They're all sending their screenshots because they know that Mashensky is lying about not your keys, not your coins, right? He said that Bitcoin maxis are trying to get you to like lose your key, lose your keys because it's good for their Bitcoin price. I know that was tweeted this wild. in public. Like the guy's Absolutely an absolute insane. cartoon fucking villain. It's like Cruella de Mashinsky or something. Like how can you skin the Dalmatians? Like seriously, you're going to skin the Dalmatians and make a code out of oh, it? Oh God, I What kind of so fucking much. villain are you, dude? Seriously. <laughs> that needs, that's a meme that needs to be created. Those are puppies, dude. You're skinning puppies. <laughs> Those poor dogs. But yeah, man, I mean, I, I could not agree more with everything you said. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I've got a dirty little secret that nobody on LinkedIn will ever figure out, but almost all my LinkedIn posts are uh, Sam Callahan, our analyst. Um, he's learned to write even tone-wise and the shit. I think he's, he speaks this Corey like better than I do. I mean, everybody knows that like half of Bitcoin Twitter is actually my alt accounts that that actually is true. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it is, it, no, for real, it is it is Sam doing my, my LinkedIn posts for the most part. And he's writing almost all of the daily Bitcoin or two at this point, which is awesome. Um, so that's, that's my uh, daily newsletter that features like one of the best pieces of educational content from the history of Bitcoin and related topics every single day. So we've basically... Uh, we've screened and, and chosen a thousand pieces of content that we're kind of dribbling out one a day and we add new stuff obviously as there's new timely great stuff like if alan writes bitcoin is venice obviously that's going in that kind of stuff or if there's an amazing podcast that's relevant we'll put that in and like put it in early in the in the um the daily bitcoiner distribution as well so check that out cory.substack.com um and then on linkedin it's interesting like the conversation's actually, uh, I think it's helping a lot of people there now that uh, Lowry is posting there a lot. Dan Held never stopped. He's always been posting on LinkedIn and I've started posting, you know, every day. 
Um, and I already had, I was like, you know, member hundred thousand on LinkedIn cause I'm old and I was in B school in 2002 when it came out. So, you know, I've built up a huge network on LinkedIn anyway, and you can have a lot of influence there. I get a lot of messages of people, you know, curious about Bitcoin, confused about blockchain. They got a blockchain certification. They did pumps crypto class. Like they're, and they're like trying to figure out what's going on here and they want to learn about Bitcoin and they want to get involved. So I think it's good. I wish that I was, you know young and hot enough to do some TikTok. I think more people should do some TikTok. And like, I feel like we all kind of gave up on the gram, <laughs> but it'd be nice to get out there. And, you know, there's, there's people questioning right now, right? Like their NFTs are down 98% in many cases, or just gone or, you know, funds absconded with the crypto portfolios are down 90%. And like the Bitcoiners are still here and we're still strong. And again, I tweeted this out last week, the community, well, the communities for crypto disappear when the price goes down, right? Because the strength of a crypto is the community. Like basically the, re oh, here, this is what it was. I think uh, the reason a shitcoin has value is because of its community, right? The reason Bitcoin has community is because of its value, right? So we ain't going nowhere because Bitcoin is the only one that's actually real. Like we're not friends because there's a pump. We're probably better friends when there's a dump. <laughs> Absolutely. Every, the signal becomes so much higher when there's a dump in the bear market or whatever we're calling this. Yeah. Um, that's when the work gets done. One thing that you mentioned that I want to go into is the incredible educational work that you've done. Um, really early on, you identified the need for high quality education in the Bitcoin space. And I think it's one of the things that is really remarkable about Swan Bitcoin and what you guys have done there. I mean, I remember when in, you know, what, 2021, you would just be on Clubhouse, personally on Clubhouse, like six hours a day, just dropping knowledge bombs. And there are so many people that were helped by those, that, and that's just one tiny aspect of what Swan and you have done with regard to education. How do you think about that? How did that come about? How did you, why, why did you, how did you identify that as an area that was where there was a high need brought me on dev dev dragged me on the clubhouse on like christmas of 2020 so i think i joined on the 26th and i think they just kind of opened the roles on like the 20th before then it was sort of very insidery and they were throttling it and then they said you know anybody that gets on can invite five people so it was like you could very you could do a tree of invites like very quickly and all the bitcoin rooms were full of shitcoiners pumping their you know wise tokens and nft that and whatever and i was like oh my god like there's almost there's literally no bitcoiners here it was basically it was alex thorne who runs galaxy research but back then was doing fidelity research and then there was uh terence yang obviously who now works for swan and there was jeet sidhu who i think took basically he's he's back at uh fidelity on alex's old team and that was basically the people that were on talking bitcoin and battling these people and i was like man y'all need some reinforcements. So I just coordinated an invite tree. I started a telegram group and I coordinated an invite tree and texted and messaged and emailed like every Bitcoiner we all know and made sure they all got invites and we just flooded the motherfucker. I'm and imagining like a montage, you know, like in like a war movie, like dee, 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 dee. everybody's on there like little like Morse code machines and it's like 100%. sending it out and then it's like, Dude, you, know, you see SOS. Yeah, exactly. SOS. Yeah, because you could just, you could tell from the experience of social audio that it was going to take off, right? And Clubhouse is still a great experience, even though obviously the, the Twitter graph, you know, makes it very difficult for Clubhouse to compete. 
um, you know, the experience on Clubhouse is actually a way more fun place to hang out generally, I think. I feel like I have to be kind of saying pithy things because there's only, you know, 10 or 12 speakers and you kind of feel like you got to bring the goods on spaces, whereas Clubhouse, you can just kind of say whatever the fuck you want because there's 50 people on stage. Um, but back then it was all education focus, you know, before everybody knew each other. And it was really like Bitcoiner, beginner Bitcoiner Q&A 24-7 because we were in the middle of a pump. The altcoins were pumping. Bitcoin was pumping. And, you know, we had just gone through all time high on, you know, December 15th or something of 2020. And I think it was the 16th, actually. Yeah, 16th. And um, we needed to be there. We needed to be there to, to answer questions, to, to invite people, to greet people. Uh, that's where I met Steven Lubka. I interviewed that dude. Essentially, I saw him work for like 500 hours before realizing he should be like head of Swan Private Client Services, <laughs> you know, because I just heard him like calmly answering questions on Clubhouse and being like a good dude. It's also where I found Dread because like his voice was amazing and he was just, he was so chill, man. He would just like the most aggro person you could just tell in his voice, no matter what, that Dread was the alpha and everybody would just back the fuck off and like the room would be chill again. I didn't find out for like six months that he was like the national pole vault champion of Jamaica. And I was like, oh, no, of he course, never, he never of leads course. with that. No, but his Twitter handle that. is pole vault dream. Like I should have had some kind of clue. Yeah, but that could mean anything. I mean, yeah. so you know. like, you know, just like, so I, you know, I, I dragged him into podcasting. I didn't know if we'd ever end up doing anything with Swan or not, but like we sent him the gear and trained him on how to do it. I came up with the name for the show, One Love Bitcoin. I was like, bro, you just like, you have to have conversations with people. I actually, I should check. I don't actually know if we have anything to do with it anymore. <laughs> I just knew that dude needed a show. Well, that's something um, that I think is, is really interesting yeah. is that like on Clubhouse, and I, did, I think I didn't really state this well enough. Like you really came in at a time when Clubhouse was, just becoming part of the the mainstream milieu and you identified as you said that it had been taken over by shitcoiners and you basically rallied everyone in the bitcoin community who was really big on you know who who was primarily contributing on twitter and you were like we got to get in here this is the future voice chat it's 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 the shit and everybody was like ah maybe is it really and you demonstrated that it was you created cafe bitcoin and i mean it, cafe bitcoin is the largest bitcoin community on clubhouse and we're able to, to, to identify these people, these stars, bring them up. Um, I, I, I don't think the significance of that in this bull run or in the bull run can be understated. And that's, it was huge for sure. And by the way, I do have shout out. I'm, I'm sure Lamar and black point, black Bitcoin billionaires probably still have more members. Um, I think it is probably more than fair to say if they tracked listener hours, that for like all of 2021, Cafe Bitcoin was easily number one for listener hours. Like we had really large rooms going all the time, basically for the whole year. Um, it's obviously splintered a lot. We brought Cafe Bitcoin over to Twitter spaces now with you guys um, every morning, seven to 9 a.m. Pacific, 10 to 12 Eastern, Cafe Bitcoin on spaces hosted by Bitcoin Magazine, Swan Bitcoin, <laughs> and your host, Alex Dan. Way too early, but shout out Alex. I see you in the crowd, but also way too early in the morning for us LA kids. Homie, it's also a podcast. That's what Alex would say. You can listen to the podcast. <laughs> Wait, Hugh, you're in LA. I don't think I knew that. Now we need to, we should just go ball together instead of just making videos for Twitter. Dude, I'm so down. You, okay. you tell me where I just hang out by the beach all the time. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm down. Yeah. We'll, we'll find a day to go hoop for sure. All right. What's next?
So one thing I want to dive into that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned a comment that you made around uh, Doquan and you were like, yeah, I'm getting some strong <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes vibes. This is some bullshit. And I just want to uh, tease that out a little bit more because mm-hmm. what was it about his, uh, the specific communication style that set that sent up red flags for you? I'm asking from the frame of like, what should people be looking for who are just getting interested in Bitcoin? Um, what are the things that you know, you'd be like, this is bullshit if you see this? Yeah. I mean, ad hominem attacks when people bring real criticisms, calling people idiots, uh, you know, dodging questions, just acting cocky as hell. I mean, I mean, not to not to keep on dragging a dead horse into the convo, but the last time I saw somebody being so disingenuous, whose name wasn't Udi, was uh, was Plan B, right? Like he just claimed you know, you're a mean person, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, like deflecting, deflecting, blocking, 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 like, that's the mark of a charlatan, you create an echo chamber by getting rid of all dissenters, so that your echo chamber only sees confirmation. So it's just kind of classic cult building, basically, you know, I'm the master of coin, I'm the master of stable coin, stable quan, you know, and you know, he had, he had some Bitcoiner supporters and those date back to the foundation of Terraform Labs because there were Bitcoiners working at Polychain when they did the seed round, you know? So I think he's friends with some of these San Francisco Bitcoiners. He went to Stanford and I think he had some air cover there and, you know, I think he was kind of able to, able to weasel in a little bit with, you know, I had a number of Bitcoiners subtweeting me with like long threads when I was attacking Doquan and, saying things like, you know, some people don't code, they're just marketers. Keep an open mind, let your brains fall out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious because like, despite Doquan's behavior, like there will inevitably be another person who attempts this or something akin to this. And I'm curious if you think these like detract from Bitcoin's overall growth, or if you think this is like a necessary cancer or a necessary like sickness that we have to like repeatedly fight off. It seems almost every cycle there's like- Well, is Munib, is Munib at Bitblock Boom and Del- Baltic Honey Badger or there is he at go. consensus permissionless? Where, what, what's his crew, right? And we already know that literally any shitcoin could have the exact same consensus mechanism that they have, right? There's nothing special about the Stacks shitcoin. Right. It's just an enrichment scheme. It's a Bitcoin affinity scam. Orange washing like a motherfucker. So, you know, I'd love to see some people with like deep knowledge of code actually put it together and like have the definitive, right? Like it's one thing to see Adam back going back and forth on Twitter. It's one thing for somebody else to explain that any shitcoin could do the same thing, you know, that could mine their coin by, you know, you spend Bitcoin for it or whatever the fuck their mechanism is. Like, it's just obviously trivial and stupid. Yeah. I mean, it's like um, the, it's a perpetual Ponzi basically. It's right. Well, it's I, I will say Ponzi, I, and it spawns dumbass shit like Miami coin, which again, isn't big enough to have an impact on Bitcoin. So I don't care. I called it a scam. I said, you're all going to fucking look stupid and pomp came at me again. And obviously the shit's down 95% and was always a fucking scam. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say, I think that, that there is some interesting technological innovation around Stacks. I agree with you though, that Stacks is 100% 
the way that there's it's interesting techno there's interesting technological innovation happening in DeFi that will one day be on Bitcoin. Exactly. There's a few things. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. One hundred. That's fine. And but how are you marketing it, and what are you doing it for? Yep. You're doing exactly. it to enrich yourself. Yeah, and right? Muneeb is like every he just it, to the same thing with like Machinsky, Muneeb, all these people. They just dodge the question, uh, and they will not answer, and they they force, as you said, they force the frame using cult-like tactics to basically uh, parry and sidestep when real technical yeah. questions are asked or moral questions even. And it just ends in, in, in absolute tragedy as- Let's clasp hands and say a prayer for the Celsians. Let's do it. I'm, I'm here Let's for do it. it. Yes. May they escape you- their Mashinsky syndrome cage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was a there was a, a clubhouse conversation uh, many months ago where I was talking to I think their their CMO and I was like why does there need to be a token this doesn't make any fucking sense and he's like oh you, it totally makes sense you just got to talk to Machinsky like get in here and jumped into the room on clubhouse and he just wouldn't answer the question I was like why is there a token why is there a token why is there a token and he, his answer was um, do you want to make more or less. And I was like, what does that even mean? And there was, there was no good answer. It just didn't make any sense. Mm-mm. Q, it looks like you, you were sighing very eloquently. I just, you know, it's, it's, nope. it's, it's, such, it's such a hard situation because you're like, you finally find Bitcoin, which deserves your attention and your effort and your admiration. And you're making all these, you know, great professional connections and you're, going to war with an amazing team, both like my, my core team at Swan and the extended team of like you guys and Unchained and, you know, Casa and Spectre and Strike and all these guys like working their asses off for Bitcoin. And then you, you just have to be strong because the outside world that doesn't understand the difference thinks you're part of crypto and associates you, you know, personally and professionally with like get rich quick schemes. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a sacrifice in a lot of ways. Um, I envy the young people that get to just hang out with Bitcoiners and don't already have like large professional and social circles and wives and kids and all that kind of stuff and school boards and all this shit and having to explain what you do. And like, it is, it's a real burden that people like, you know, mid-career or midlife working in Bitcoin have to bear because there are a lot of personal costs. So that is that is one thing that you should be like really aware of is it ain't easy. You got to put up with a lot of shit looking like you're close to crypto. It's one of the reasons that I like to be so vocal, you know, and never let it pass. I not once do I ever let an interviewer get away with saying Bitcoin maximalist without explaining where that came from in that Bitcoin is not crypto. Not once do I ever let them say crypto without stopping the interview on fucking camera live and explaining that there's Bitcoin and there's crypto. Every single fucking time, never give up. (laughs) I think one thing that I would say though, is I think, you know, you've talked very publicly about your your own personal journey of like sort of being in the shitcoin space early on and then coming to understand that Bitcoin was this completely different asset. And I think that, again, it's, it's being able to, to distinguish between people who are genuinely here to learn, as you mentioned earlier, like you were saying, like, look, when I'm talking with normies, like, I'll just, 
I'll have conversations with them. And, and you do, you have like hour, hours you'll spend just like mm-hmm. sort of explaining the basics, answering questions. And somebody's like, oh, what about quantum computing? Like, and you, you'll, you'll sit down with them genuinely. You don't just tell them like, hey, go fuck yourself. And I guess that's why I was asking the question around like, how do you distinguish between these, these scammers versus people who are just completely misinformed, who are worth you know, your time to sort of educate? I'm curious, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, you can, you can find out pretty quickly which one they are. Like I'm in an ongoing conversation. It's going to take a long, long time with, uh, I joined YPO like six months ago and I finally got assigned to a forum. So I've got this group of like eight people that I meet with for like four hours every month. Wait, wait, you got to define YPO for the audience. It's a young president's organization. Anyway, it's, it, it doesn't matter. It's just one of these like professional associations for executives or whatever the fuck. And I just wanted to do it for networking so I could orange pill the shit out of it. And, uh, there's a lot of crypto people in it and they're all trading NFTs and stuff. So I just figured it would be a good place to go and do some orange pilling. How far, how far into the, how many sessions do you have to go before they start talking about like, you know, blood boys and like harvesting the organs of the, the youths? That's skull and bones. Like, that's the, oh, uh, shit, uh, that's, right. that's, that's, yeah, that's a different I got, thing. I got it confused. All right, keep going. Yeah, no worries. Or maybe there's WF. <laughs> anyway, so like I have a lot of empathy for someone that I met through IPO because he's like just sold his company and he's like going straight to DeFi and working on like two protocols and like, but he never studied the history of money, has only heard shitcoin or narratives about Bitcoin, thinks it's going to get shut down by governments because of the environment stuff, uh, is Keynesian. So he believes that money can't be deflationary, thinks that the, the supply of money must expand to match GDP growth and, and population growth. And so he's never, he's never challenged the foundations of like what he's doing. He's just a good coder and he's a smart guy and he's well-networked and he's not a bad person and he skips straight to shit coins. I thought it was actually hard to do that the last few years because the signal to noise ratio was way, way higher in a bear market and like an early bull market. And now I realize the echoes of like 2021, 2022 are exactly the same as 2017, 2018 right? Like OG Bitcoiners who came in in like 2011, 12, 13, were probably looking at me in 2017, following the signals of the VCs that I always look to for signal, Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures. Union Square Ventures was all over like Kit, Ken, whatever. A16Z was doing every shit coin. Like, you know, I thought that was signal. Crypto Canon. Oh my God. They hired Chris Dixon. He's working on altcoins. Like, this is dope. Like, what's going on? It's so cool. This is so innovative, right? I thought we had done a better job or that it was possible to do a better job and that we could help the people coming in during a bull run come straight to Bitcoin. Now that there've been, you know, three big bull pumps of, you know, 13, 17, 21, and each time has been like a crypto explosion, probably got to get ready for that again in the next one. It's very possible that we don't actually have cycles and that cycles aren't real. And like, who knows, like maybe it's just like an aberration that they kind of match with halvings, by the way, I'm not, and one or two data points doesn't mean that it happens forever, but there will be bull markets regardless in Bitcoin. It's just kind of the way it works and it, it should be expected to work that way that especially with a fixed supply, like there's nothing to suck it up. So um, I think we just have to be prepared and maybe just be like a little bit more ready to to siphon these people off and like point out with you know 
I, I think toxicity worked for me. It doesn't work on everybody. Like it absolutely worked with me. Like I think everybody knows my foundation story of the thing that like punctured my shitcoin bubble was meeting Jimmy Song at a conference in late 2017. And he was just looking around at everybody like he fucking hated them and wanted them to drop dead. And I was like, well, that's attractive. I just dig in more. I started watching his podcast and that pointed me toward Andreas. And then I, you know, Safe's book came out and Marty and Stefan's podcast started. And like, eventually I got there. You know, I think uh, not everybody responds the same way. Some people want to be told that they're super fucking smart first and, and then, you know, steered gently. So anyway, I'm trying that with a couple of people. It's worked here and there. Like I got a VC buddy that I've been arguing with about Bitcoin for like four years. And he called me on a Tuesday morning, like two weeks ago. And he had just taken a COO role at a Bitcoin miner. He had taken it the day before. He Fuck called yeah. me 9 a.m. on Tuesday. He was like, yep, you were right. I'm orange pilled. This is dope. Did you make him join you on a video call so you could just dab repeatedly? Yeah, exactly. No, but we'll definitely go and, and grab a Bitcoin lunch for the first time pretty soon. He's here in LA. So, um, you know, they, everybody in their own time, we just got to, you know, I think it makes sense to try to reach more people. It's all incremental. As, uh, as Will Reeves at Fold says, you know, we've all, we're all automatons now recruited by Satoshi in service of the protocol. Like we can't help but work on anything oh, else. Like there's none of us, there's not a, not one of 60 swans could fucking imagine doing anything else other than work on Bitcoin. And I know you guys are the same. Like, how could you imagine not doing this with your life? Yeah. It's like, do you want to have a legacy that is meaningful and yeah. contributes to the future? Or do you want to drain the present of all possible value and hatred? Bro, I got this new video ad unit. It totally drives 2% incremental engagement. It's selling for like $6 CPM. Oh, it's God. so hot. We're and all change, you gotta, we're going to change the world with this ad tech banner. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all you got to do is you just got to like find some orphans under a bridge and just like feed them into the meat grinder. But I mean, it's a high cost, but the, the dollars you make, I mean, how can say no? Isn't that the world coin white paper? The one with the orb that captured, like, I think it like extracts your eyeball or something and puts exactly. it in Mark and exactly. Reason cereal or something. Yep. Yep. It has like a little melon baller that just like shoots out like yeah. a little scorpion tail and just takes your eyeball out. And then Dude, you get world can, coin. Can you, can you imagine being in like some fucking village in Sri Lanka or fucking Tanzania and some motherfucker tries to make you put your eyeball up to this thing? Yeah, people are like, I'm here because my government is trying to eviscerate me. Like, I need some unconfiscatable peer-to-peer uh, -peer money. And you're like, yeah, just look, in, look into this orb and get your soul sucked out. And by soul, I mean your eyeballs. Like, who needs to see when you have whatever the fuck token? Q, you look like you're talking, but you are very much- he, He's only right talking now. to Twitter spaces right now. He's not talking to us. He's talking to WorldCoin. Hit us well, with a Q. Thank you so much for your eloquent words. You're, you're such a master with the way you put those together. I have so many wonderful images that will haunt me tonight. So thank you for that, P. I will say this, like I, my first time I bought Bitcoin was in 2019. I didn't really feel that bear market in the way that I'm feeling it now. As to both of you who have been in this space long enough to have felt like a bear market seen, you know, the rise and falls of not only Bitcoin, but various cryptocurrencies, what are you trying to, I think, steer people away from, obviously, other than shit coins, but like, we keep, we keep making the same mistake is the point I'm trying to make. And like, 
how do we stop making this mistake of yet another shit coin spiraling up and then rug pulling other people? You can answer that one first. I've done a lot of answering. I've talked out. All right. Um, the question was, how do we prevent people? How do we prevent? How do you prevent get, get rich quick schemes? I don't think you can yeah. ever stop them. So yeah, as, long as, as long as they're legal in crypto, they'll continue. The only thing that will stop it will be in jurisdictions that decide that they're not cool with that anymore. But like, doesn't opening the door for like regulators to start to get involved with Bitcoin and crypto at large, open the door for them to most likely do something like what we saw out of New York, where clearly no one understands what energy even is or how Bitcoin is mined. And as a result, they're making legislation that's just more harmful to the Bitcoin ecosystem at large. Like, how do we try to balance that with regulators who are just dinosaurs who only care about their next election? Well, Bitcoin mining is like incredibly anti-fragile, right? Because that creates massive opportunity for everybody else around the world. If you, you know, clamp down in New York, then it goes to Texas, it goes to Canada, it goes to Norway. Like, it's not that hard. That just creates opportunity. It's more money for other miners. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just New York shooting itself in the foot straight out, in my view. And it sucks for certain people that are operating in New York, just like it would suck to like, you know, turn off on-ramps in the United States for Bitcoin, right? That would suck for a lot of Bitcoiners. It would suck for price for a while, but the protocol would march on and there's zero chance of like all governments globally, you know, clamping down at the exact same time and coordinating. Like the game theory just does not support that. And it's getting further and further away as we speak, as the global order, you know, disintegrates in front of our eyes. It's been a slow roll since the fall of the Berlin Wall and it's dramatically accelerating lately and it ain't going to turn around anytime soon. We're heading into like decades of fucking chaos and the chances of everybody coordinating because we all just don't like Bitcoin. Well, somebody's going to run against you because they like Bitcoin and the people like Bitcoin. And if there's any democracy left anywhere on the planet, there will still be like plenty of fully legal Bitcoin. And I think we see that game three playing out in El Salvador and a bunch of other countries now. How does it make you feel to know that the house that Kobe built is now crypto.com arena? It's disgusting. It's truly disgusting. There's zero chance, not zero chance. There's a very small chance they uh, actually see the full seven or 10 years of that contract. The largest ever naming rights for any sort of arena in the world, I believe. So. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you're far-fetched to throw that out there. I'm curious, though, because you see this influx of crypto in, in the sporting world. Every athlete wants an NFT. You have NBA Top Shot releasing different game highlights. You have different teams looking into NFT tickets now. How does Bitcoin get involved into that space when it seems heavily invested by crypto at large? I mean, I don't think it matters at all. It's orthogonal. I mean, these things aren't decentralized. Obviously, the authority of the third party, the NBA, is what determines whether that little market has value. Um, you know, the story of every collectibles market is eventual saturation. Each individual collectible can be unique in its own, but then they just keep on making more unique things, and then the market crashes. So the market for NFTs will inevitably crash overall. It doesn't mean that there isn't still like a handful of really expensive baseball cards 
and some expensive comic books. Of course, there are a few, but like the market overall is just going to crash like crazy. I mean, comics are never coming back to where they were in the early 90s, right? Because if you had like, you know, if you had like a successful Superman line, it's just too hard not to make like six more Superman comic book lines. Like, of course, you're going to. You know, I collected Disney comics when I was a kid. Loved, loved uh, Carl Barks in particular, the guy that drew like all the Uncle Scrooge stories for like 50 years. And all the, if you grew up with DuckTales or watched on wherever it is, HBO or whatever now, like those are all basically based on Carl Barks uh, stories. And, you know, it was awesome because the dude like was a history buff. He was a travel buff. He almost every story was based on like a National Geographic story that he had read basically about some place in the world. And then he would like, just, he had the mechanism of Scrooge being the richest guy in the world. So you could basically do whatever the fuck you wanted. Cause he could, he could foot the bill for any adventure. Right. So like, that was dope. And I was like, this is awesome. These, shit, these shits are the shit. I'm going to get all these dope comic books. I'm going to have like millions of dollars when I'm older. And uh, you know, they basically cost the same now, like a mint, a mint vintage, you know, 1988, 1990, you know, Uncle Scrooge comic book in mint condition costs like 50% more than it did from the newsstand. Look at that store of value holding up. Holding up. Yeah, it's about the, about as good as gold, actually. So yeah, I'm actually doing okay. I've given them all to my daughters now, so I, I don't care. They can rip them up if they want to. They're, they're just destroying them upstairs in the playroom right now. Do you give it to them as like, this is the parable of Scrooge McDuck? And you like hand it to them and you're like... No, I... The seminal, I, the seminal I text. do, absolutely. Hang on one sec. Well, while, while Corey goes to get his yeah. copy of Scrooge McDuck, I want to ride everyone Absolutely. that tickets. Very important, you know. So some of them I don't actually hand over. Some of them I, I have to keep under wraps. Like this is this is the life and times of Scrooge McDuck, the uh, the 13 episode series. Oh, fuck you yeah. Know. So you got to keep those ones under wraps. But, uh, you know, the lesser collectibles, uh, they can go ahead and draw on and put stamps and stickers on and shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that's basically what will happen. Um, I think, uh, you know, everything that Gary V has done to essentially just like destroy his reputation for all time by scamming the shit out of people for the last year and a half has been hilarious and sad to watch. Um, you know, everything Chris he Dixon is doing is just hilarious and sad to watch. I used to read every post that guy wrote and he's like the king scoundrel at Andreessen now. Um, really all like of this whole fucking... Board, Eight Yacht Club, Board Apes Yacht Club thing, by the way, is literally just manufactured by Andreessen and CIA. Like they're giving the fucking money to the celebrities so the celebrities can buy the apes. 100%. I mean, do you... they're not fucking buying apes, obviously, dumbasses. And then CIA can get their 10, 10% commission. Yeah. And package them into shows and sell them off and like do whatever. Like it's all manufactured. Again, it's just, it's just orthogonal. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, I, I, fine with this stuff not being on bitcoin <laughs> i don't care oh sorry hey. I, do you feel like the chickens will ever actually come home to roost because there's a you know quote i forget who said it but it's like inside uh inside every cynic is a heartbroken idealist <laughs> and i like i definitely identify as a bitcoin maximalist and i i am less eloquent than you are and going in and having some of these debates with with shit coiners but I wonder if people like Gary Vee will ever actually be called a task. I feel like there's so much obfuscation and yeah, so Corey, much- Corey, if you want, I will gladly arrange and set up for a debate format with you and Gary Vee. I have a line into him. I weirdly do. Just you tell me when, and I will do it for you. 
That's an interesting one. That would be really interesting. Um, he has shown an unwillingness to engage genuinely on Bitcoin the few times that I've seen it. Um, he just kind of punts and he's, he, it was so obvious to him that he had the, after having talked about collect, collectibles for so long and then, you know, having done social media for so long, like he's the perfect weapon for this scam. Literally the perfect weapon. Yeah, I mean, the Gary you know, V friends thing is just abhorrent. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what that would serve. I guess it would be uh, good to grab a bunch of his audience and expose them to somebody talking eloquently about Bitcoin and kind of explaining what the NFTs aren't decentralized and stuff like that. So, yeah, maybe we can talk about it. I haven't seen him since he hosted like a, a wine gathering for Google employees in like 2011 at his office. Actually, it wasn't even his office. It was that Raptor, what was it, Raptor Ventures or something. Jim Pilata, the guy that part owns the Celtics, has an office right there in Manhattan. He's friends with Gary and he used to do wine parties there. Anyway, he was sniffing his own farts when he was talking about shitty red wine. That's all I remember. Um, Corey, I want to ask you, honestly, what has become my favorite question to ask to any guest I know full well this is not your space and I'm going to default and say that this was genuinely a question that was asked by someone on Twitter when we announced that we were going to have you on the show today. I'm curious what your thoughts are on just the correlation that we've seen between Bitcoin and the public markets mm -hmm. over the last few months in particular. Um, I want to start there and then I, I want to throw a theory that I have out at you and, and hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense that it would be because so many people with large portfolios in traditional markets have added Bitcoin, large positions in Bitcoin into their portfolios. And for them, it's, you know, it's a, something that's risk on. And so when, when risk is off, they sell off their Bitcoin along with their other risky stocks, kind of, you know, flight to value or whatever. So of course it's going to look correlated because of the new market participants in Bitcoin. This comes with having a higher market cap and a higher price for Bitcoin. You're going to correlate in the short term with the queues, right? We've seen 95% correlation with the queues for like 18 months now. In the long term, there are just going to be idiosyncratic things that happen with Bitcoin where maybe the Fed loosens and stocks go up a bit, but Bitcoin goes up 10x, right? Or something happens like, you know, some major nation adopts Bitcoin and there's just like a run or there's, you know, another, another, you know, bail in Cyprus style, but it's a larger country and it makes people around the world finally wake up or, you know, regulation comes down on shit coins and everybody who's interested in crypto has to pile into Bitcoin, you know, if they, and then they start building on layer two, three, four, and people realize it actually is the internet of money. And that's where all the innovation is going to happen. And we just stop arguing about this dumb shit. Um, so there's a bunch of different things that could just be, you know, sparks for massive rises in price. But uh, yeah, in the short term, if you're zoomed in, it makes a lot of sense that it would be heavily correlated with, with tech stocks. Okay, cool. So I'm now taking it that we actually see things in the same way. I've been a very big proponent saying that it's just these funds that aren't publicly traded they're not going to have to disclose them buying or selling their Bitcoin stacks and their stacks might look like a whale moving things, but ultimately like we keep thinking, Oh, whales are selling or whales are buying. It's probably one of these funds. I'm curious now because you know, when Do Kwon announced Luna's plan to back Luna with Bitcoin and they're buying up Bitcoin that coincided with both a run up from Bitcoin's price of about 40 K to 44, as well as we saw 
the NASDAQ make like a dead cat bounce from lows to a, a weird short-term high and then sell-off ensued and everything. The most recent sell-off then also coinciding with Dokkan having to unload some Bitcoin. I'm curious how much weight you actually put on that moving the Bitcoin price versus just the broader market participants, chiefly the big money moving the price up and down. So here's how I see it. Go on swan.com and sign up for an automatic recurring purchase plan. Set it and forget it. Make that decision once and stop fucking worrying about price. All sats are cheap under a million dollars a coin. <laughs> Who fucking, you got to get people to like not give a fuck. Like honestly, all this, all this TA masturbation, I'm glad that the market has given the lie to it. At least we can get rid of that. The on-chain stuff was getting way too much fucking hype. It was crossing over into like S2F territory late last year. It was fucking embarrassing. And I'm glad that basically everybody looks like a fucking idiot now. I really, really tried during uh, Bitcoin 2022 to call some of the on-chain uh, segments, uh, the tea leaves never lie. But uh, <laughs> for some yeah. reason, people involved were not into it. Well, the problem is the, the on-chain metrics that do a decent job always have price in there somewhere. And then the model adds noise to price. So it looks like it has a high correlation, but all you're actually seeing is noise around the price signal. And in oh, that respect, it's not that much different than S2F. <laughs> interesting. I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah. I agree that there, there are, or with what Q was saying, I think a second ago, which is that there are some interesting things that can be derived or attempted to be derived from on-chain data. They but described I hadn't the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, described never, the past. They're yeah. fun for, I, I, it's great. Like, I listen, there's some cool shit. I will absolutely tweet out some glass node shit. I'll put it in my fundraising decks, you know, Sam fucks around with on-chain stuff and finds cool things to describe what's happened and what's happening. And it goes in Swan Private Insight. Tomer looks at it sometimes. Like there's definitely some cool shit, but like it doesn't predict the price. The price is the fucking price and you don't know what's going to happen. So just buy and fucking hold every single day. I love the idea that price is the noise in on-chain analysis like if price is this price is the signal in on-chain analysis all the other factors are noise oh interesting okay yeah. got it well got it. there's also a case to be made though that even the price itself has noise baked into it because everything is getting priced in usd like look i fancy myself a technical type of person like i'm an astrology buff clearly oh, like I, oh you read those two leaves you into those two leaves? I, every morning Every morning I read the tea leaves after my cup of tea. Like, you know how I do it, P. But God damn it. to your point, like I even sent a tweet out today where I was like, look, just because something looks oversold, historically speaking, that doesn't necessarily mean it's due for a reversal. It can still get more oversold. And actually, if you look at things historically, yeah. they never are done selling off when you think they should be. I do, like, I always fall back on the idea that a lot of more basic technical things are rooted in human psychology. And like the way we act, unfortunately, like it hasn't changed. You could read Marcus Aurelius's meditations and realize that like humans 2000 years ago actually like operate to a same capacity, like socially as they do today with the advent of, with the exception of the fact that we're all digitally connected and don't have to necessarily be there physically. Um, if you can recruit enough people to your line, you can trade it, right? Like Fibonacci's are a meme, obviously but you can trade it because enough people trade it. So if you, if you, if you, that's if you, so valid. Like if I've you long, if you long the bounce off the line, you know, 
seven times out of eight, you're probably going to make a little bit of money, you know, but I don't trade, you know, it's not what I've spent my life doing. I, I learned other things. Full disclosure, there's never been a moment I've sold a single sat in my entire life. I, I do talk technicals, but I fully buy into this idea that just buy it and don't think about it. DCA, I do an hourly DCA myself. Yeah. Um, but I also think so it let is- me, let me, So let me throw you a, a bone here because I, I watched probably more TA stuff that first year of being like Bitcoin only as probably probably not more but you know maybe like 30 percent of the hours that i spent was like youtube ta shit and like 70 percent was educating myself about bitcoin once you get into an asset that moves like that and it's 24 7 like it's so fun it's so addicting right and i was trying to time my buys and it was only like i remember exactly what the moment was it was like with my family in palm springs and it was like a saturday morning and my fucking delta app or blockfolio app thing went off at like 5 a.m and like a crackhead I went and like got my phone and placed a trade and I was like oh my god I'm a horrible person <laughs> that was it for me. Oh, no. <laughs> that, was, that was like in oh and and I was also trying to like time buys uh because I just I still wasn't just like I still had cash on the sideline though and I don't have much of that anymore but uh in like the run-up in 2019 I was trying to like wait for like one more drop I was like Ah, there's no way it's going to pound through 4k here. Like it's going down one more time. I'm going to get it at, I'm going to put this money at 3,600. And it was like that one candle on like April 5th or something. It went straight to 5,600 or something. And I was like, fuck, you know, like I could have had 10% more Bitcoin or something like that. Like, you know, it's pretty funny. So I, I empathize and I, and it was the best thing that ever happened for not the best thing that ever happened for me, but like one of the things that made, that's made life way easier for me in the last few years has just been on automatic recurring purchase and not thinking about it. And yeah, obviously if like one of my old startups like exits and I get a chunk of change or whatever, I'm putting that into Bitcoin as fast as possible, but um, I just don't worry about price anymore. Now I will say that 29K feels like 6K in 2018. And that does worry me. I hope that the market has matured and that there are enough people that recognize the value of Bitcoin that, you know, there's a bid here forever and there will like always be a bid at 26 or something. But I do worry, like we, we bounced off of six the whole damn year of 2018, getting closer and closer and closer to it. And then the bottom just fell out and we were at three. And, you know, I don't know. It'll be really interesting if we actually have that kind of, you know, max pain, because I don't like we're all still happy and fun and, you know, jovial on Twitter and their telegram groups are active and people want to go to conferences and stuff like it'll be really interesting if we see, you know, Bitcoin has never gone below its previous cycle all time high before. And it's not Thank actually a it's not a mature asset until it does. Right. It's you're not you're not you're going to go below the highs of previous pumps in the future might as well fucking get used to it i don't want to see it this time but like next time i'm cool with it like i actually would much prefer Not we like time. stay at 29 go up to like 150 and then like come back to 68 and then go up again <laughs> something like that would work for me i don't want it to go below the previous all-time high this time i think that would be like super depressing but i, I have no thought? problem i have no problem with the next pump then coming back like below 69k 
For a second, I thought you were a bear there. I was I was getting very concerned, but I'm glad to. No, I, I had I'm, I'm uh, actually Ben Carmen's coming out here to shoot all the bears on my property uh, this summer. So that's going to be that's awesome. Good. That's yeah. good. I was just reading some tea leaves. Though, <laughs> so I have to share this. <laughs> this is the I, most price talk anybody has gotten me to do in three dude, years. It's all Q talks about. I love you, Q, but I, I look, I I'm that jackass. I know I'm that jackass, but I also I kind of recognize that for most people who just get in all they are looking for and all they want to do is talk price and to make them understand like price genuinely doesn't matter totally about a point however on the topic of price i just had this conversation with my dad at breakfast this morning so only reason why i want to genuinely ask you this because i also i have a hard time believing we'll go below the previous cycles high just based on historical precedent that can obviously literally change tomorrow and it doesn't matter and it's all negated and a lot of people say like that 14,000 number coincides with the 80% drawdowns with which we have seen historically. But also I think all of us are on the same page that eventually the volatility will become more muted over time. Mm -hmm. And so if we start seeing instead of 80% drawdowns, we started seeing 65% drawdowns for a couple of cycles or four year, two year pumps, whatever you want to call it. Would that not start to actually help solidify some of our root base case arguments or are you saying like we're not ready for that yet we still have so much more runway to grow um i mean we'll definitely get there at some point i just don't know when you know i mean i think we will see for sure uh reduction in volatility and that will obviously be sort of coinciding with the spread of bitcoin as a medium of exchange like that's that's kind of where i see things going i think you know for me just ballparking it. I think it's like 20, 20 trillion dollar market cap, million dollars a coin. That feels like when we're going to see, you know, a lot of people using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. Like right now where we are uh, in 2022 is the people who are using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange are people in developing world who actually have like real use cases for it, like in Nigeria and a few other places. Um, but otherwise, it's basically only sort of like the homebrew computing club, super lightning fans like Plebnet and Bitcoin companies and OGs that basically had conviction about Bitcoin quite a while ago, probably eight years ago, to the point where like 95 plus percent of their net worth is Bitcoin. And so they're really interested in spending that Bitcoin. So I think, you know, the next wave of people who will be wanting to spend Bitcoin will be like 2025, 2026. It'll be the people that had conviction about Bitcoin in like 2016, 17, 18, bought a lot of Bitcoin, ride it up quite a lot. It's most of their net worth. They're looking for ways to just like kind of decrease friction with the fiat world and kind of live on a Bitcoin standard. Um, that's why I personally, you know, I place a lot of bets on lightning companies and invest in, you know, the seed rounds of all these lightning companies. And it's why we're building a lightning wallet into the Swan app later this year. And you know, I just think it's important to be early, but uh, you got to have a little bit of patience, you know, like it's, we're still, we're still early in Bitcoin as a store of value. It's a tiny, tiny market cap versus where we're going. Like a hundred trillion dollars is like 200 X from here. Like we've got a long way to go before it's a mature store of value. Um, so I just, you know, try to have some equanimity about it and, and understand like, 
is just a lot of noise coming from journalism land over here and traditional finance over here and shit coins over here and like just stay the course and keep building. So Corey, what is something that we have not talked about? Like, what is the thing that we should have asked you about? Because it's super interesting that we didn't. Well, obviously the Pacific Bitcoin conference. We were getting there. We only have like seven minutes. I got to call at 1130 Pacific. So. Okay. <laughs> we should, we should are you, are you hit us with a cool sharing when I know that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's done deal. Details. We signed, we signed it. It's November 10th and 11th. So it's Thursday and Friday. Uh, and the 11th is veterans day. So you only got to take one day off work to come. Um, Bitcoin magazine is the official media partner and is bringing the volcano desk and the whole crew. Um, so we're just going to have a big LA party. Y'all rug pulled me in 2020 and 2021, both of which were supposed to be in Los Angeles. I had a whole like LA Bitcoin week planned leading up to the conference, all this, like we were supposed to launch Swan at the damn Bitcoin conference in 2020. I don't know if you guys knew that it was supposed to launch on March 27th. And we couldn't launch the look. company at the conference. I'm so sorry. That must have been like the worst moment to try and launch a company. Yes. No, no. It was great because all your early customers are super happy. Oh, that's a good point. Those yeah. cheap stats. It was the best possible time to launch Swan because everybody was like so happy for like a year and a half. Now they're like, so uh, Stefan, I've been listening to your podcast. I don't remember that one about 28K Bitcoin. <laughs> nice anyway um but no it's gonna be so much fun honestly we're, we're, we got the barker hangar at the santa monica airport um you know amazing stage amazing acoustics so much fun for activations i think this is going to be like a hangout with bitcoiners super fun conference we have so many cool things to do already planned um it'll be very memorable so i would make it happen i need to I need yeah. to ask, this is going to be like a West side LA thing, right? We're not oh, like yeah. venturing to downtown or any of that it's stuff. It's a West right? side LA thing. Yeah. Go ahead. I knew I vibe. No, it's, it's at the Santa Monica airport. No, the moment you said yeah. that, I was like, like, you're not going to throw a random event in West Hollywood. No, like, that's going to no. take a whole day to no. get there. Wait, it's literally at the airport. It's at the airport. No, 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 no. Yeah, Santa Monica airport is not what you're thinking. Like I go play soccer at the Santa Monica airport. All right. All yeah. Right. It's where Harrison Ford like tries to land his plane and crashes into the golf course every <laughs> once in a while. I'm in. I'm yeah, in. it's awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll, it'll be a blast. Um, and then also come in the weekend before. The entire Swan team from around the world will be there the whole week. And uh, you know we've got I think seven thousand square feet of office spaces of, across like fifteen suites in the hangar. So we're gonna let like sponsors and Bitcoin friends come super fast Wi-Fi, and we're all gonna kind of just like work there and hang out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, getting ready for the conference. And we're gonna do this every year. So every year, you know, Bitcoin globally descends upon Los Angeles for a week with the conference on Thursday and Friday. I'm here for it. Packbitcoin.com, P-A-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N, and it's also Packbitcoin on Twitter. But uh, yeah, we'll have ticketing up like. I think next week, um, just figuring that out with uh, making sure we can uh, accept sweet sats for those few people that don't spend their dirty fiat first. <laughs> Love that. You heard it here first, November 10th and 11th here in Los Angeles. Come for the yes. whole week. Come party with Swan and everyone else who's going to be 
flocking to LA. I guess there will be a basketball court at the conference, by the way. Oh, are we doing a dunk contest? No, I'm more of a three point shooter at this point. I haven't dunked since 2014. And I realized that I had my first daughter later that year. And that's probably why. <laughs> I kept on thinking I was like going to do the squats and the box jumps and like dunk one more time. And I just don't think it's going to happen. It's so far. I got an now. idea for a 3v3 like basketball tournament. And we should There's somebody doing it. There's somebody there doing is? it. Yeah, no, no, there's like a basketball tournament guy uh, on Twitter. I got to find his handle. But yeah, there's okay. like a Bitcoin. Let's do three it. Three we sponsor the Compton Magic now, too, the number one AAU team in the country. So the whole squad is going to be there, all three ages. So it'll be like 36 dope basketball players that can wave at each Running other above the crowd. Grown men. Bitcoiners. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, Corey, I know you got another meeting. I want to give you the chance to like actually get, get settled. Really, really appreciate you joining us and just all the work you're doing to you know help educate everyone out there. Uh, remind everyone sort of the website, the Substack you shared and other places they can stay up to date with what you're sharing and posting about. Sure. Well, first we talked a lot about education and I think the product we put out a few months ago, the Canon, so swan.com slash Canon, C-A-N-O-N is truly amazing. It's a great place to start people on different aspects of Bitcoin. So you can like we call them rabbit holes. So like Lynn Alden put one together on energy. You've got like Matt O'Dell putting one together on privacy. Um, and so you can kind of explore that and send that link to different people. And you've got like the authority of somebody plus them curating the list of resources and it's topical, right? So there can be like a Bitcoin 101, but there can also be something on like discrete log contracts and have like eight articles and podcasts about that topic. So I think that's a really great resource that more and more people are using and linking to. And I think it deserves some shine. Um, and then otherwise, yeah, my, my daily Bitcoiner is, uh, Corey.substack.com. Uh, the Swan Bitcoin newsletter, uh, is a great source of information. There's original content at, in it, every issue. Um, so that's just swan.com slash newsletter. It's, uh, 230,000 people, I think get that now. So it's definitely been growing a lot, which is awesome. And, uh, and then I'll just tease something that you guys are also heavily involved in. Um, we'll be putting a lot of press out about this, but uh, in June, uh, Hard Money launches, which is the first network quality Bitcoin news show. And it's being produced by Swan and Bitcoin Magazine. Natalie Brunella is the host. Uh, we teased one episode and released it already. It has special reports that are more like hour long versions. And that's uh, so hard money Kaiser is when Max and Stacy go and do something. So you guys aired that with uh, with him and, and Ricardo Salinas. And there's a few more of those in the can already and planned. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be it'll be a big deal. And we're going to get syndication for it and have it be on, you know, cable and OTT networks and stuff like that over time. So I think it's uh, I think it's important for us to be able to put uh you know, the type of stuff that they're used to, you know, she's, she's a good journalist. She's an Emmy winning reporter and anchor. We've got an ABC news producer in there, you know, the whole staff, the cameraman, everybody has like network news experience. And we're just going to really try to like level it up. Um, and I'm really excited to be working on that with you guys. It's airing on Bitcoin magazine. So we're shooting it in the Swan studio over in Malibu, but it airs on Bitcoin magazine and it's coming out in June. So look for that. Fantastic. Love Love that. If you guys did not check out the first episode, uh, be sure to check it out with Max Kaiser, Stacey Herbert, and Ricardo Salinas. It was an awesome shot. Like they're just hanging out in their 
jet. I believe they were flying from Mexico to El Salvador. Everyone saw those mm-hmm. pictures circulating online when Ricardo Salinas sat down with President Bukele. So be sure to check out that link. It is available on, uh, I believe, on Bitcoin Magazine's mm-hmm. YouTube channel. Corey, you are late for your meeting, and I am so, so sorry. No, I hope fine. you will come back and join us again soon, though. I will. Um, Tell Jimmy I said hi, by the way. I I did my first Jimmy Song podcast ever a few days ago. Um, Oh, nice. That should should be coming out in the next couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, it was really fun just kind of telling his version of going to BlockCon in late 2017 and how unmemorable that was for him and and my side of it being somewhat more memorable. It's a a good pod. I will be sure to check that out, guys. Awesome. Corey, you're the man, dude. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Peace.